Barat, we're super enthused to have you on the podcast to talk about Bidenomics, or as we call it, middle out economics. The one sentence description is that uh, Bidenomics is about trying to grow the economy from the bottom up and the middle out rather than from the top down. What about the billionaires, Barat? Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah what, what about us? We The president cares about everyone, but when, when he evaluates how the economy is doing, his question is, how is your typical middle class right. person, middle class family doing? From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. Back when I first started working with you, Nick, more than nine years ago, if you can believe that, nine years, nobody's ever employed me this long. I don't know what's wrong with you, Uh, but you gave me a book to read. In fact, I had two books on my reading assignment. One was Piketty's Gargantuan Capital in the 21st Century. (laughs) That was a test. That was a test. (laughs) The other was this teeny tiny book uh, that you co-wrote with Eric Liu called Gardens of Democracy. And in that book, I think we published that in 2010 or 11. I can't remember. Yeah. So, So in that book, you coined the term middle out economics. That is correct. And we did that because we knew that if you wanted to win the day on political economy, you had to build a counter narrative to the trickle down neoliberal worldview that dominated both politics and policymaking in both political parties. You know, you had to frame the choice as a choice. You have to provide a contrast between what the bad people believe and what the good people believe. And to try to get people to see economic cause and effect differently. And holy crap, as you know, we have been at it <laughs> uh, for a long time, but right. here That's, we are. We're the middle it, out people. That's that's yeah. all, most of what, what we've been doing here <laughs> know. for the past nine years. And yeah. who would have thought Not that- Not me. We would that- <laughs> that the, we would get that there. The guy who would advance it, the person who would advance it most yeah. Would be Joe Biden. Yeah. Wouldn't have guessed it. Uh, but today we get to talk to Bharat Ramamurti, who's been on the pod before, amazing economist, is the deputy director of Nash of the National Economic Council for the White House. And he previously served as a member of the Congressional Oversight Commission for the CARES Act and uh, managing director of the Corporate Power Program at the Roosevelt Institute. A really smart, really interesting guy to talk about. Bidenomics and you know what it means and what they're doing. It's Bharat Ramamurti. Uh, I'm the deputy director of the National Economic Council at the White House. Uh, I don't have any books or podcasts of my own to plug, but um, but I will plug that we got another good jobs report today, showing that we're over uh, 200,000 jobs created last month. And our total uh, since the president took office is now over 13 million, which is more in two and a half years than any president has had in a four-year term. So uh, good news on that front. Oh, oh, sure. You've delivered 13 million jobs, but where's that recession I've been promised? (laughs) (laughs) I was joking with somebody earlier today that pundits have predicted nine out of the last zero recessions. 
Um, <laughs> and that I, I remember sitting at this exact desk uh, a year ago and people were saying that a recession was imminent. And now we are here we are about a year later with uh, literally millions of new jobs created during that time, wages going up uh, and inflation coming down substantially and still no recession. I know it uh, is a favorite of some uh, folks to, to yeah. <laughs> continually predict that a recession is imminent, but there's certainly little evidence that we're in a recession now. And, and the folks who've been projecting one for the last year have been wrong. The great thing about predicting recession is that eventually you'll be right. <laughs> That's true. It, it, it may take a decade, but eventually. Yeah. It may take a pandemic, <laughs> but eventually. So, Barat, we're super enthused to have you on the podcast to talk about Bidenomics, or as we as we call it, middle out economics being the same thing. <laughs> um, but describe for our listeners how the White House is thinking about this, what the planks are, and what the policies are that you're you're prosecuting. Sure. So I think the, the one sentence description is that uh, Bidenomics is about trying to grow the economy from the bottom up and the middle out rather than from the top down. And as we tried to put it down on a piece of paper, what it really meant. We, we identified three areas that are, in our view, very unique to this president's economic approach. Number one, he more than recent presidents, I would say, is really focused on, on investing in America and building more in America. We see that in the, not only the infrastructure bill that he passed uh, in 2021 with bipartisan support, but also uh, the CHIPS Act, which is about semiconductor uh, manufacturing in the United States, uh, and the Inflation Reduction Act, which uh, has significant provisions about clean energy production in the United States. Uh, you also see it in his really steadfast determination to use our Made in America laws uh, and to not waive them, uh, as some administrations have done in the past, but to make sure that if we are spending U.S. taxpayer dollars, that we are buying American-made products to the largest extent possible. Uh, second, he really focuses on empowering workers. You've heard the president probably say that he is the most pro-union president in history, and I think that his actions bear that out. But another really important way of empowering workers is to have a full employment economy. In other words, having a, a job market where employers are having to compete to attract workers rather than the other way around. And uh, for a lot of the last 30 or 40 years, we've, we've had the opposite. We've had a market where workers are scrapping and clawing with each other to try and get uh, access to, to jobs, which means that employers can often get away with paying lower wages and offering worse schedules and so on. The president wanted to flip that power dynamic and make sure that workers were the ones who had the upper hand. And I think we're, we're seeing that uh, now with... Uh, wages rising, particularly at the lower end of the income spectrum, uh, with uh, job satisfaction. This is one of my favorite stats. Job satisfaction at a 36-year high. And the third is uh, is really an emphasis on uh, restoring competition to the heart of the economy. For the last 20 years, we've seen 75% of industries grow more concentrated. We've seen consumer options dwindle in certain areas. We've seen options for workers in many areas uh, dwindle. Uh, all of that means higher prices and it means lower wages for workers as well. Now, one study found that the combination of those two things, higher prices and lower wages, was costing the typical family $5,000 a year. And, and the president wanted to get back into the tradition of, of the Roosevelt's, both Teddy and FDR, in having a really robust competition policy, which means not only on the enforcement side, where obviously we don't direct 
uh, enforcement actions, but he wanted to put in place really strong uh, enforcers at the FTC and the Department of Justice. But also, uh, there's a ton of regulatory tools that we can use to promote competition, and that uh, was part of his executive order on competition in, in 2021, uh, and a set of steps that have brought more competition to everything from the healthcare market to uh, airlines to, to electric vehicles. That's fabulous. And I want to expand on each of these planks because I think that they're dead right. But let's pause and just talk about the broader state of the economy. Because if you read the, again, if you read the newspapers or watch TV, you're often not given an accurate picture of how strong the economy is, both relative to prior administrations, but also relative to the rest of the industrial world. Yeah. So let me start there because the truth of the matter is that coming out of the pandemic, there was a set of global challenges. There were all sorts of supply chain issues that were causing prices to rise in every country, not just in the United States. Uh, and then on top of that, you had Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which led to a massive surge in commodity prices for food and for uh, obviously for oil and gas. Every country was dealing with those challenges. And so the question is, how is the U.S. done relative to other leading economies during this period of turbulence? And the answer is, uh, since the pandemic began, the U.S. has the highest uh, rate of economic growth out of any of the leading economies, and it currently has the lowest level of inflation. So by those two very important metrics, uh, I would argue the U.S. has had uh, the most effective economic recovery out of any of the world's leading economies. If you just look at objectively where we are today, the unemployment rate is under 4%. Uh, it's been under 4% for 17 months now, which is the longest stretch of sub 4% unemployment that we've had in 50 years. Wages have gone up uh, across the board, but particularly for uh, folks at the low end of the income spectrum, a lot of people who have not gotten a real wage increase in a long time, uh, such that uh, we're, we're meaningfully closing wage inequality in this country just in the last two years. Number three, we are seeing the prospect of good jobs attract people off of the sidelines in a way that we haven't seen in a long time. So a way of measuring that is called the labor force participation rate. In other words, it's the, the percentage of people who are either employed or actively looking for work. And if you look at that for prime age workers, in other words, people between the ages of 25 and 54, it's at the highest level it's been uh, in, in 20 years. And it's the, the highest it's ever been uh, for women. It's at the highest rate it's ever been for people with disabilities. Uh, all of that is indica indicative of a, of a job market that is so strong, where the quality of jobs is so good that people want to get back into the workforce are actively looking for work. Uh, and that's uh, that's the kind of economy the president wants to build. That kind of dynamic is not only good for individual workers, it's good for the US economy as a whole. That's what middle out economics means because when your typical working class person has a good paying job, has money to spend, they're spending it on things that businesses produce. And that creates an incentive for businesses to invest more in making more things, which means that they want to hire more people and on and on and on. You get this virtuous cycle. And uh, and that's the kind of dynamic we want to create. We want to kind of move the economy into a, uh, into a new and better equilibrium where you have higher wage growth and more productivity and more economic growth uh, than we did pre-pandemic. 
So can we go back to the first plank, which is investment? For our listeners, if you can characterize the size of these investments uh, that are taking place today and will take place over the next probably 10 years, don't you think? Is that about right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Um, both the public and private investments that are happening. And if you can compare them to what's been in the past, because I think what people don't understand is how huge this is relative to what we've done over the last 50 years. Yes. Let me give you an uh, example in construction of manufacturing facilities, right? This is a uh, a a relatively narrow category, but an important one because it means that obviously if you're investing in in creating new manufacturing facilities, that means that you're going to be producing more things uh, at that facility in the future. You're going to be bringing more jobs uh, into those areas. You know, the previous president talked a lot about making more things in the United States and manufacturing and so on. Over the course of his presidency, you know, up, up into the pandemic, investment in manufacturing uh, facilities went up 2%. And uh, under this president, it has gone up nearly 100%. In other words, it's doubled. This is unprecedented. You know, if I, I, I wish I could show you a, a, a graph right now because it would basically be you know, a line bouncing up and down for the last 40 years and then just shooting straight up uh, over right. the last two years. That was the plan. That was what was intended with the CHIPS Act with the Inflation Reduction Act, that was to encourage, by putting public dollars behind it, it was to encourage more private investment. Uh, In total, what we have seen uh, since those bills were passed, and it was just about a year ago, is uh, $500 billion worth of private sector commitments to invest in the United States. And these these are companies that have their choice of where to invest, right? These are companies that may well have chosen to invest in production in Asia uh, or in Europe previously. But now they're choosing to invest in the United States because under President Biden, we have made it an attractive place to invest again. I don't understand. My econ textbook tells me that all this uh, public investment should crowd out private investment. And you're telling me that it's crowded it in? (laughs) Yes. I mean, look, I I think that what that textbook uh, may have mentioned in passing but but it's a really important point is that that's based on certain assumptions about how our global economy operates. And I think what we have seen, at least based on recent circumstances, is that those assumptions don't necessarily hold. And that when, when the American government, with all of the advantages that we have in America, we have um, really strong capital markets, we have an incredibly well-trained workforce, we have uh, a great court system and rule of law, we're, we're a very attractive place to invest as it is. And so when the federal government says, gives, gives folks a little bit of a nudge and says, this is where we think you should be investing, people are more than happy to follow. That's what we've seen over the last uh, year or so. And, and it matters. It matters because as the president has identified, it matters where you make things. Not everything necessarily, but it matters where you make really important uh, inputs for our supply chain. One of the reasons why we wanted to make sure that semiconductor production was happening in the United States was that during the pandemic, we had a shortage of semiconductors. We were relying on production abroad in countries that, uh, for example, China, that were locked down and weren't producing uh, semiconductors. And it led to all sorts of disruptions to the supply chain. Almost every major product relies on semiconductors in one form or another, cars, washing machines, toasters, everything. 
And so um, when there was a shortage of those chips, uh, we made less of all of those other products or the prices went way up and, uh, and American consumers paid the price. And so uh, if we make that here in the United States, we have more control over our supply chain. We have fewer disruptions in the, in the future. That's really valuable. Uh, you know, there, another important thing is clean energy. Of course, there's going to be uh, a strong need for uh, clean energy in not just the United States, but globally. And there's real benefits for America being the place where we make that clean energy, where we create the products that are going to be necessary, whether it's batteries or solar panels or wind energy or, or so on. We want to be the ones leading uh, the efforts to uh, create this product to drive down the, the price of clean energy so that every country in the world benefits. And there's going to be a multi-trillion dollar global market for clean energy in the decades to come. We want to be the ones who are leading that and exporting those goods to countries that need it, rather than being in a position to have to import that, maybe from countries that don't share our values. So there's important economic benefits and there's important uh, national security and strategic benefits. Yeah. But, you know, in aggregate, it's going to be trillions of dollars that are invested in the country over the next years. And I think this this is super relevant to a lot of this recession talk, because, I mean, my instinct, I'm going to say it on the pod, I'm going to say it to you, Brought. people may laugh at me in the future, but my personal prediction is that we will not see a recession for quite a long time, barring some extraordinary exogenous event like an asteroid impact, because, you know, the amount of investment that's taking place right now is going to balance out, you know, other business cycles. That's the first thing. And the second thing is, is that I, I also believe that you're going to see GDP growth rates in the United States go back up to the levels that they were in the 60s as these investments begin to turn into productivity increasing activity. I just don't see how it could not be so. So yeah. I think the American people actually do not know what's about to hit them. It's going to be big. Yeah. Know, in a good way. Nick, the Congressional <laughs> Budget Office models have a bone to pick with you. Yeah, I know. I know. But I, I know I know what's in those models. <laughs> I <know>. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, I think that you are uh you are correct that the investment that is in many ways just starting to hit the system yeah. is going to have a, a positive effect, right? I mean, that I, I'm trying not to overstate it, but, and you see it show up in different ways. So, you know, one of the reasons I suspect that you are continuing to see you know, big increases in, uh, in construction and manufacturing jobs, you know, we've gained about 800,000 manufacturing jobs since the beginning of this administration. Is that not necessary? Is that a lot of these companies, even if they're not using those workers immediately, they know that they're going to use them in the future and they want to hold on to them because, yes. uh, because they know that they will use them and they know that uh, they may be in a situation if they try to let go of some of them that six months from now when they need them, it's going to be hard to hire because we have such a strong job market that those people are going to have a lot of choices about where to, where to go. And so it it does kind of put a, a floor under the economy in, in some sense, uh, because, because companies have a lot of investment in the pipeline. They have a lot of workers that they want to keep on their books because they know that there's going to be work to do. And that's really important. And, and the other thing is just the president likes to talk about how these are generational investments. 
And I think that that's underrated in the sense that FDR's Rural Electrification Act, right, about 100 years ago, you had millions of families, uh, millions of households that didn't have access to electricity. And so there was an effort to go out and build poles and wires and to connect every household in America, which they did. And, you know, that obviously created jobs, with people who built the poles and put them up right. and put up the wires. But, but then think about the benefits long-term of connecting all of those millions of households to electricity and what those folks could then do thereafter that they weren't able to do before. Those jobs created other jobs. Exactly. Which and is I think the point. The fact that, <laughs> you know, the analog now is that um, you've got, you know, 10 million or so uh, households in the United States that don't, don't have internet access at all. There's no infrastructure in their area. And what we are doing for the infrastructure bill is connecting every single one of those households to high-speed, reliable internet. So that's going to create jobs, in many cases, union jobs, you know, going out and laying that fiber, fiber optic cable to connect people to the internet. But then think about what the benefit is of having 10 million additional households who can uh, do telemedicine or can start a small business and sell things online or can you know, stay connected to their families and, uh, and the social benefits and the economic benefits that that provides. So these are uh, important generational investments that are going to pay off uh, not only with the short-term job creation, but long-term with the, in my view, productivity enhancing benefits. Yeah. So can we turn to competition? This is probably the wonkiest, hardest to understand and most invisible part in many cases of Bidenomics, uh, but it's so important and so crucial to both economic growth, but also to both higher wages and lower costs for Americans. Yep. Um, and is it 72 separate executive orders working their way through agencies aimed at this kind of stuff? Yeah. And so it's one executive order, but 72, it directs. Oh, oh, it direct. Okay. Yeah. But it, it's massive. And, you know, a fantastic example of that is the prohibition against uh, non-competes, yep. for example. Uh, just speak to that. Yeah. This is something that's really near and dear to the president's heart. Uh, he's been talking about it for years now, but uh, believe it or not, there are 30 million uh, workers, roughly speaking, in the United States that are subject to these non-compete agreements. And uh, just so if folks don't know what those are, they're basically clauses in an employment contract that says you can't leave this job in this field and go to a competitor uh, in the same field. And, uh, you know, maybe for a certain period of time, for a year or two. And you might think, okay, well, that, that makes sense if you're you know, the CEO of a technology firm that has you know, highly proprietary information and, and wants to take all of that to a competitor. But no, uh, it, it applies to, to security guards, to people working in the retail sector. It applies all across the journalism uh, space. It applies to people in the medical space, to nurses. To the woman who cuts my hair. Yeah, and it applies to people who work at one you know, hair salon and can't go work at the hair salon across the street and make $2 more per hour. It's a real uh, deterrent, obviously, for uh, workers trading up into better paying jobs. And so um, I think the president personally finds that offensive and thinks yeah. it uh, is bad for workers. It's bad for a country that prides itself on giving people the freedom to choose where they work uh, and uh, under what conditions. And so it's uh, bad for innovation. It is. Yeah, it's bad really for competition. Game. The only thing it's good for is the big shareholders of giant companies. Exactly. And so 
the, the Federal Trade Commission uh, has proposed a rule that would completely ban uh, these non-compete agreements. And uh, right now it's uh, in the midst of the rulemaking process, which means that they're taking comments from the public on this proposal. Uh, and, you know, an overwhelming percentage of the, of the comments that they're receiving are positive. And it's incredible if you take a look at them. Uh, it's just from every walk of life, you've got cardiologists and surgeons talking about how uh, non-competes make it harder for them to, to switch jobs to maybe even to areas of the country that really need their services, but they can't do it. Uh, you've got, like you said, people who work at uh, hair salons saying they can't go uh, start a small business that tries to compete uh, with their previous employer. And so hopefully the, the FTC will move to the final stages of that, finalize the rule, and it will then uh, take effect at some point uh, in the future. But we have this really strong job market right now that we've talked about already. We want to make sure that everyone can take advantage of it. And the fact that 30 million Americans right now can't really fully take advantage of it because they can't uh, find a better paying job in their same field because they could get a lawsuit. Uh, you know, that that's just wrong. And we want to make sure that we're doing something about it. You know, another thing, just because I know fo folks are really focused on uh, prices as well. Encouraging competition is really uh, about, in many ways, also about bringing prices down. Uh, because if you have, you know, one, one, one data point that I always found interesting is that we talked about that, you know, the fact that there's about 10 million households that don't have any access to the internet. Well, something like 70 million Americans have access to the internet, but there's only one provider where they live. And uh, this is not surprising, I'm sure, but the people who have only only have access to one provider on average are paying way more for monthly service than people who live in areas where there's two or three providers. That's what competition does. If you have to compete with some other internet service provider, you're going to have to bring your prices down. And so uh, one of the things that we've tried to do is bring that competition back into more fields. Uh, one area that we're very proud of is that we finalize rules that allow uh, hearing aids to be sold over the counter instead of Previously, they were only available by a prescription from a specialist. When you had to go to a specialist and go through that process, and there was all sorts of arrangements between uh, doctors and specific manufacturers, the average pair of hearing aids cost $5,000 and often not covered by insurance. And so when you have about 40 million Americans who have mild to moderate hearing loss, you know, how many of them can afford $5,000 out of pocket for hearing aids? The answer is not that many. We changed the rules. So now that now hearing aids can be sold over the counter, you've got all of these companies, innovative new companies, companies like Apple and Bose, uh, innovating in this space, offering over the counter hearing aid options. And now you can go into a convenience store, you can go into a store like Best Buy, and you can pick up a pair of really good, high quality hearing aids for something like you know a few hundred dollars instead of a few thousand dollars. That's just one really tangible example of how bringing more competition to the space, opening it up the market to more entrants can lead to better product choices and lower prices for folks. This is a great segue to, I think, a really important point, which is how different this administration's approach has been to economic policymaking than prior administrations, for certainly Republican administrations, but if we're honest, other Democratic administrations too, don't you think? <laughs> I think the, the most obvious differences are with the Republican trickle-down approach, and that's really yeah. what the president has focused on, right? Uh, the idea that if we uh, maximize corporate profits, maximize tax cuts for the rich and, and, uh, and big corporations, that all of those benefits for those at the very top will flow down to everybody else, and that's the smart way of, of growing the economy. 
That's not our approach. And, and I think that that approach, approach has definitively failed. Uh, yes. It didn't produce higher growth. It, did, it certainly made the economy less equal. It grew one thing, which was the bank accounts of people like me. It, yeah, yeah exactly. super good at that. It was <laughs> you know, super effective. It what about the billionaires do. brought? Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah what, what about us? Right. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, we the president cares about everyone, but he wants to make sure that you that your typical it, when when he evaluates how the economy is doing, his question is how is your typical middle right. class person, middle class family doing? Do they have financial security? Do they have the ability to get a good paying job that supports themselves and their family? Do they have the ability to save a little bit of money for retirement so they can retire with dignity? And uh, if you look at those types of metrics, um, this economic recovery has been an incredible success. The middle class, the sort of working class has seen the highest wage growth. They have seen the opportunity to trade up into better paying jobs. As I mentioned before, job satisfaction is at a 36-year high. And these new jobs that are being created by these new investment programs uh, are the kinds of jobs that can support uh, a family, uh, even if you don't have a college degree. You know, the typical job that's being created by these investments in, in semiconductor manufacturing uh, pay about $100,000 or more. And uh, a lot of those jobs don't require uh, a college degree. So you know, one of the things the president has said is that his goal is to make sure that no matter where you live in America, whether it's on the coasts or in the heartland or in a big city or a small town, uh, rural or suburban, that you can find a good paying job with dignity where you live that allows you to stay in the place where you grew up if you want to do that. But what we don't want is an economy where everyone has to flock to a handful of big cities because that's where the good paying jobs are. And so... We're, again, we are seeing that. We are seeing investment return to some of these communities that have been hollowed out by the loss of good paying manufacturing jobs over the last 20 years. And I think it's a very different approach that really focuses on the, the well-being of the typical American worker. I think that's what really drives this president. How is that person doing? Do they have job opportunities? Do they have the opportunity to live with dignity, retire with dignity, uh, take care of their kids, pass along a better life to their kids than the one that they had. There's been a lot of questions about what is Bidenomics. I think uh, beyond some of the, the wonkier details that we've discussed today, that's really it. Are we delivering for that person, that family? That's right. And, you know, brought. I don't know the president that well, but I had one two-hour one-on-one with him one mm -hmm. time. And what really struck me was how emotional he gets about that, right? Like yep. he just really cares about that. It's just so refreshing uh, to have somebody who, you know, down to their molecules is committed to the idea that when the typical family thrives, uh, the country prospers and, you know, mm -hmm. we, you know, we do well. I, I just, it, it's just so great. It's just been so long, <laughs> frankly, yeah. since we've had somebody who cared about this in this way. And, and I think what's so important, the distinction is it's not like we're choosing between chocolate and vanilla here. They want to grow the economy from the top down. We want to grow it from the middle out. He's making a much stronger claim, which is the only way you really grow an economy is from the middle out and the bottom up, right? That, exactly. that other thing was a scam designed to enrich the few. Or or less 
malevolently it was it was a mistake. <laughs> yes. I mean, because there are Democrats who believed it. And I, and, yeah. and I think, Barack, that what really characterizes Bidenomics, what makes it different from what we saw under Presidents Obama and Clinton, is that this is an argument about cause and effect, that the president truly understands and makes the argument that the economy grows from the bottom up and the middle out, that emphasis on growth, not that doing things for the bottom and the middle are the right thing to do or the fair thing to do uh, or the most deserving thing to do, but this is how you grow the economy. And I just, I don't believe that Presidents Obama and Clinton believed that. I th think they believed it was the right thing to do. I just don't believe they thought that's where growth primarily came from. They largely believed it came from freeing private investors and the market to do its magic. I, I, look, I will say this, which is that there's been this this thinking that there is a trade off between economic fairness and economic growth. That mm -hmm. you can you can have a more fair economy, but you have to live with lower growth, or you can have a really fast growing economy, but then you're going to have to live with uh, an unfair distribution of that growth. Right. And I think that. What what the data really shows, and I think what the president believes, is that there isn't that trade-off, that a fairer economy grows faster. Yeah. And that and that again, as we talked about earlier, that it makes sense, right? Because if you have more people who have more financial security, more disposable income, more money to spend, guess who benefits from that? You know, your local small businesses, your local big businesses that uh, are going to have more people coming in the doors to buy whatever they're selling, which means that they in turn are going to want to produce more and hire more people and so on and so forth. If you have an economy where some people at the top have it all or most of it and everyone else is hanging on by their fingernails, who's going to buy all the stuff? <laughs> right. Right. Nick, Nick tries, God bless him, but he just can't do it. <laughs> there isn't there just isn't the time in the day for right, Nick exactly. to buy all the stuff. Um, and so. I, this is a president who cares a lot about economic growth and wants to see the economy grow quickly. And in fact, we have seen it grow quickly in the last two years. We had you know, nearly 6% growth in, in 2021. But the way to do that is to uh, make sure that your typical middle class family, that, as the president said, is to grow the middle class so that the poor have a ladder up and so and because the wealthy still do well in that situation. And yeah. So, that's that's really what this is what this is about. And I will say this to the president's great credit. There's been a lot of people who have attacked him for for taking this approach and have said that you know the American rescue plan was poorly designed and was too big and was this thing and that thing. And, and I think that uh, that his approach has been vindicated because um, we have had among the world's leading economies the best and fastest uh, economic growth. And a really equitable recovery. You know, we've had we've hit record low unemployment for Black workers, for Hispanic workers. As I said earlier, we've hit the, the lowest level in 70 years for uh, female labor force participation. Some of the workers who have been left behind in previous economic recoveries have actually done the best in this economic recovery, and uh, and that matters a lot too. Absolutely fantastic. Final question. Yeah, why do you do this work? <laughs> I, look, I do it because uh, there's no better feeling than seeing the American public benefit from some of the things that you do. You know, I remember 
after we worked hard on, on finishing those hearing aid rules and, and getting them in place last fall, walking into a walking into an electronic store and seeing a booth set up where people were talking to the to the, the store employees uh, and trying on different hearing aids <laughs> and and realizing that hey maybe that was a person who couldn't afford a five thousand dollar pair of hearing aids and, and maybe missed missed some conversations and couldn't fully participate in social interactions because uh, they were having trouble hearing but now we had given them an option for a lower cost hearing aid that they could afford and now they would be able to do all of those things that means a lot you know when i when i see you know workers with disabilities uh working at the highest rate that they've ever worked at i think uh, you think about all the people who've been maybe excluded from economic opportunity in the past who are now getting that chance to show what they can do that's a good feeling to wake up to every morning is the feeling that maybe you can do something good for people out there and uh, and that what we're what we're working on not everything but most of what we've done has really worked and and, and that's a good feeling so awesome well uh, congratulations uh, I mean, you guys have crushed it and we thank you for your work and uh, thank you for spending the time to talk to us about it on the pod. Absolutely. Thank you guys. Uh, it's been good talking with you again and uh, hope we can keep in touch. Bidenomics, Nick. Is it a real thing? What do you think? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do think it's a real thing. Uh, and, it, you know, the way I like to think about Bidenomics is that Bidenomics is to what we think of as middle out economics is Reaganomics was to trickle down economics. They're one and the same. But one of the things that we actually didn't really cover in, in the pod, probably worth exploring at some other time, is the amount of historical empirical evidence that supports these claims. Right. Because if you look back in history, when the country did the best, whether you want to call it Bidenomics or middle out economics or whatever you want to call it, those things pointing policy at middle class people believing that a thriving middle class causes economic growth. When we did those things, we had massive amounts of growth that when inequality was lowest, GDP growth rates were highest. And, you know, I'd like to claim that we're like galactic geniuses who thought up this new thing that has never existed in the world. It's not true. This is what built the United States in many ways, right. certainly what built the middle class. And, you know, it's just great to have a president who's so old, he remembers that <laughs> and <laughs> prefers it right. to the to the neoliberal hellscape that we've been living through for the last 50 years. I think what's important pointing out here, Nick, also is that, you know what, you don't have to believe it. I mean, there is this empirical fact that the economy does better under Democratic presidents than under Republican presidents. Yes. Universally, by every metric you want to use, yeah. GDP growth, productivity growth, wage growth, uh, job creation, job creation, uh, stock market indexes, yeah. every metric that people use to measure the economy, it has done better under Democratic presidents than under Republican presidents. And I, I think it's fair to say that from Carter to Clinton to uh, Obama, they have generally fallen under the benevolent neoliberal ideology, right? They were Correct. softer 
neoliberals. They they believed what they were taught in Econ 101, that the way you grow the economy is to free up capital to do its thing. And so it's generally a trickle-down approach. But one thing you can say about democratic administrations is that across the board, economic and non-economic policies, democratic policies have been more inclusive than Republican policies on education, on gender issues, on race issues, on housing, on just about everything you can think of. The progressive ideology is more inclusive. And that means including more people in our democracy, including more people in our economy. And that inclusivity that is part of middle out economics is pro-growth. And yes. I think you think, I know we've talked about it, we've written about it, even if they don't understand that yeah, cause and effect. The mechanism, yeah. They have been promoting inclusive middle out policies, not yeah. as much as they should have, yeah. not perfectly. I'm not saying that they're perfect, that things have been great for everybody, but better than Republicans. And so therefore the economy has done better under than Republicans. And I want to get back to that that comparison you made about Bidenomics being to middle out what Reaganomics was to trickle down, what we are seeing here is a paradigm shift Yes, in the way not just we talk and think about the economy, but the way we run the economy. And in the 1980s, we had the Reagan revolution. And we have been suffering the consequences ever since. And I think that 40 years from now, we're going to look back on this and it's going to be the, As Biden. the Biden revolution. It's the Biden right. revolution. I think this is a paradigm shift. This is a tipping point in the way we manage the economy, yeah. because what you were talking about with Barat, those long term investments are going to pay off. They are. And as they pay off, people are going to come to realize how different and how consequential these policies and these policy narratives are. And I think, you know, we're not there yet. We haven't won. But I think over the next decade, uh, middle out Bidenomics is going to be the dominant narrative uh, for, you know, decades to come. Yeah, hopefully a very long time. Of course, Nick, we're big believers in Bidenomics in this economic narrative, which is, you know, largely middle out. But we're really curious uh, what you listeners think, whether you're buying the, what the Biden administration is selling. So we'd love to hear from you, your questions, concerns, feedback, etc. You can send us an email at pitch at pitchforkeconomics.com or leave us a voicemail message at 731 388-9334. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.